0: Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. And as you saw in that video, we are one week away from our fall festival. And this is an FX event, and that stands for Family Experience. Our Plum Creek Kids Ministry uh, plans several FX events every year, and I'm especially excited about this one. The fall festival is a chance for elementary age kids and their parents and their families to have a great time together. And this isn't just a Plum Creek thing. We'd love to see families from all over the community. And the lunch and the fun starts right after the 1045 service next week. But we're inviting everyone to come to the worship service too. That's all part of the experience. And it's a great way for people to see what we're really about. So be sure to reach out this week and invite some families to join us. It's going to be a great Sunday. Before I get into the sermon today, I wanted to let you know, I got a text in the middle of the night from our Kenya short-term mission team, and they sent me a video of uh, one of their visits to one of the schools with Missions of Hope, and I wanted to share this video with you. Missions of isn't that great? I, I almost started dancing. I was, I was close. Um, but our, our team took that video and it brings back a lot of memories for me because I was at that school two years ago and I wanted to let you know this particular school is it's called the Joska School. And Missions of Hope works with kids in the slums of Nairobi and with most of their schools, they come in the morning and then they go back home in the evening. But at the Joska school, they're not able to do that. These are children where they have no parents or their parents aren't able to take care of them. So Missions of Hope gives them a place to live, they give them food, they meet their needs, and they also lead them to Jesus. So I praise God for the work of Missions of Hope. Uh, I'm really thankful for that team that's over there right now, and I would ask that you continue to pray for them. They get back at the end of this week. Well, we are jumping back into our gospel series, going through the life of Jesus, and today we're continuing in this chapter that we're calling Called. For four weeks, We're looking at several people who were called by God to take on some important mission. We looked at John the Baptist, who had a specific calling to pave the way for Jesus. And then we looked at Jesus himself, specifically his baptism. The baptism of Jesus was kind of an inauguration of his ministry. It was a key moment when Jesus stepped into his calling. And then last week, we saw Jesus go through some intense spiritual preparation as God led him out into into the desert to be tempted by the devil. But now we've reached a new phase. As the ministry of Jesus begins, part of his calling was to perform miracles as a way to reveal his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. So today, we're looking at the first miracle of Jesus. And before we get into that story, I want to ask you a question. What is your impression of God? More specifically, when you go to God with some kind of request, how do you picture him? Is God someone who is inclined to say yes, or is he inclined to say no? What does he want to say to you? What's his default position, yes or no? If you're like me, you've known some yes kind of people, and you've also known some no kind of people. When I was in high school, I had a friend, and his mom was a nice lady, but she always seemed to have this stern look on her face. And it really seemed like when my friend wanted to do something or go somewhere, his mom was probably going to say no, unless he could convince her to say yes. But not everybody's like that. I think about my friend named Joe, who's the lead pastor down at Tomoka Christian Church in Florida. This summer, Joe was telling me about Tomoka's approach to global missions. And he said it's pretty common for people to come to them asking for financial support for some ministry somewhere in the world. And Joe said, if the church looks at that ministry's track record, and they're doing a good job of showing God's love and leading people to Jesus— Tomoka's default response is yes. They they say, if at all possible, we want to be involved. Unless we find a reason to say no, the answer is yes. So back to your impression of God. What do you think? Is he more like Daryl's mom, or is he more like that church in Florida? Well, before we're done here today, we're going to see if we can answer that question. And whatever the answer may be, I think that most of us can agree That there are times when God says yes, there are also times when God says no. For instance, look at our story last week when Jesus was tempted. What was that about? Well, the temptation of Jesus is about God saying no. There were three temptations and each one went against the will of the Father. So all three times Jesus was called by God to say no, no, and no. But today's story is about a miracle that took place at a wedding in the town of Cana. Jesus turned water into wine at that wedding. And this is cool because this time around, the the story of the wedding at Cana is about God saying yes. Last week was the week of no. This week is the week of yes. And already, this is encouraging to a lot of us here. Because many of us have a problem that we would love for God to solve. We're asking him to intervene and do something, to change the situation. We're we're asking him, God, could you please help me out a little here? And it's just good to hear that even though God does tell us no sometimes, there are also situations where he's going to say yes. So let's go ahead and read this story. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead to John 2 and follow along with me. If you don't, we'll have it up on the screen. So here we go. John 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there you have it. Jesus turns water into wine. It's his first miracle. And you know, if I'm being honest, this story is a little weird to me. Uh, This might just be the strangest of all the miracles of Jesus. He's not healing the sick or giving sight to the blind. He's not feeding thousands of people or raising the dead. He's helping to solve a catering problem at a wedding reception. When it comes to emergencies, this one seems pretty far down on the list. So why does Jesus perform this particular miracle? And and why does John make it a point to tell us about it? Well, to answer that last part, in John's gospel, he describes seven miracles that Jesus performed. And he tells us exactly why he included those miracles. In John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's purpose. He writes about the miracles of Jesus to help us believe in Jesus. And did you notice, he doesn't use the word miracle here, he uses the word sign. And what does that mean? Well, a sign is directing us to something, right? A a, a sign points us to something else and that was the purpose of these miracles in one way or another each of these signs point to the fact that jesus is the son of god and that makes sense that's important because if jesus really is who he said he is we would expect him to have a power that only comes from god now before we go any further i want to pause to think about this whole idea of miracles Because, you know, this is a sticking point for some people who do not yet have faith in Jesus. They might say, hey, I I think Jesus was a great person. I'm really impressed by his teaching, but I have a hard time believing in that supernatural stuff. I ran across a Barna Barna study this week that said 51% of adults in the U.S. say they do believe that the miracles in the Bible actually happened, just as they're described. So a little over half of Americans believe that John is telling the truth here, but then the other half think it's probably made up. That means even if you don't doubt these miracles yourself, you probably know someone who does. So how can we help someone who is struggling to believe? Well, C.S. Lewis has a very interesting perspective on this. We often think of miracles as events that break the laws of the universe, but Lewis said, The miracles of Jesus do not usually contradict natural laws. So what does he mean by that? Well, you could think about it this way. I I brought something with me this morning, and you probably can't see it, but it's a single kernel of corn. And what if I told you that I could turn this single kernel of corn into hundreds and hundreds of kernels? Would you believe me? Well, it depends, doesn't it? If I claim that I can do that instantly, I'm sure you'd have your doubts. But what if I tell you that I'm going to plant the corn and then wait and watch it grow and produce a harvest? Well, you might say, well, sure, that happens in nature all the time. That's no big deal. But that's the point. Just because it happens in nature, that doesn't make it any less amazing. You see, God has this power to create something out of nothing. And we see echoes of that power all over creation. And when you look at the miracles of Jesus, he's just taking after his heavenly father. He's doing the same kinds of things, but at a different speed and on a smaller, more localized scale. Look at this miracle of water into wine. What happens in nature? Well, first, God created the vine. And he designed it to draw water up through its roots. And then, with the aid of the sun, the the vine turns water into a juice that will ferment and take on certain qualities. And C.S. Lewis said, thus, every year, from Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. So if somebody has doubts about miracles, I might say, well, do you believe that life exists? Do you believe that plants and animals grow and reproduce? And when you get a cut, do you believe that your skin has the power to heal itself? All of those things are pretty miraculous when you think about it. And we don't have trouble believing in nature because it's commonplace. But God has embedded his creative power into the universe. universe. And because of that, It's no great leap to believe that Jesus could do the same kinds of things, just in a different way. The miracles of Jesus show us that he also has the divine ability to create, to bring life. It's evidence that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And according to John, the first demonstration of that miraculous power was when Jesus turned water into wine. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, they usually skipped this story. The churches I grew up in took a hard-line stance against alcohol, and I can understand why, because alcohol abuse has wrecked many families. These churches, though, they, they taught that drinking was always wrong in every situation, and because of that, it was a little uncomfortable to talk about Jesus providing wine for a party. Now, I don't want to spend much time on this because I'd hate for us to miss the main point of this story, but I do feel the need to say a word about it. First of all, in a sermon I preached a year ago, I said that based on Scripture, drinking alcohol is not necessarily a sin. And the story we're reading today is Exhibit A. Now, some have claimed that the wine in this passage was non-alcoholic, but after studying again and reading a bunch of commentaries and looking at the original Greek language, I can't agree with that claim. However, it is important to note that the Bible does consistently teach that it's wrong to get drunk. So don't use this passage as an excuse to go out and get wasted. It's also helpful to know that wine was different in first century Palestine. It was significantly watered down. It was a low level of alcohol. Jewish people would sometimes cut, cut it with water, two to three parts water. And at the same time, it was possible to get drunk. That's why the master of the banquet says, Wow, usually you wait until people have had too much to drink, and that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. That statement doesn't make sense if it was just grape juice. But again, I want to stress that this miracle is not about the wine. God has a powerful message for us to hear today, and let's make sure we don't miss it. So let's dig a little deeper into this story. What's actually happening here? Well, John first gives us the setting. We're at a wedding in the small town of Cana. And Cana was just a few miles away from Nazareth, so not too far from where Jesus grew up. And we can assume that Jesus' family knew the bride and the groom. They were at least friends, maybe even relatives. And you should know, in that culture, a wedding was a very big deal in the first century, life was hard for the average Jewish family. But when a couple got married, the whole community came together to celebrate. It was one of the highlights of the whole year. And don't picture this as a 25-minute 20, ceremony followed by a reception that wraps up after a few hours. The wedding feast could last up to a week, sometimes longer. And who was responsible for this big event? Well, it was the bridegroom he and his family were expected to provide the food and the wine for all of the guests for the entire wedding feast but at this particular wedding the wine runs out and that's when the drama begins so wow drama at a wedding who's ever heard of that and you might think of this as a minor problem but running out of wine would have been a huge embarrassment to this family in fact The shame of this fiasco would have lasted long after the wedding feast was over. But there were a few special guests at this wedding. Jesus was there, and his mother Mary was also there. And she's the one who brings the problem to Jesus. She says, Jesus, they're out of wine. We don't know if if Mary was expecting a miracle here, but at the very least, she's asking Jesus to help. And his response is kind of surprising, isn't it? He says, Woman, why do you involve me? Now, depending on how you read that, it may sound a little disrespectful, right? You can almost hear Mary saying, Don't you sass me, young man. (laughs) But it wasn't like that. There's a cultural difference here. When Jesus addressed Mary as woman, it didn't sound the way it sounds to us today. There's another example of this later in the Gospel of John, over in chapter 19. And in that passage... Jesus is up on the cross. He's about to die, and he asks John to take care of his mother after he's gone. John 19, 26 says, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. So when he says woman there, it's it's a term of endearment. And and back at that wedding, when Jesus calls Mary woman, he's not being disrespectful. However, he is letting Mary know that things have changed. In the past, Jesus submitted to Mary as a son to his mother. But now, Mary must submit to Jesus as her Lord and Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to say, My hour has not yet come. And this is interesting because throughout the book of John, Jesus uses the phrase, my hour, to refer to his crucifixion. So it's kind of like he's saying, Mom, I can't be directed by you anymore. I, I have to be directed by the hour of my death. Nobody had the authority to hurry Jesus or to delay him. Everything was meticulously timed, perfectly planned out, so that Jesus would arrive at the cross at precisely the right moment. But then what does Mary do next? She turns to the servants and she says, okay guys, do whatever he tells you to do. She's not giving up, is she? And why is that? Well, for a long, long time, back before Jesus was even born, Mary knew that her son was very special. She never forgot that visit from the angel Gabriel or that miraculous birth. She never forgot the day when they found 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, amazing the teachers with his knowledge and understanding. She knew that any day now, Jesus would reveal his true identity, and the world would never be the same. In a word, Mary had complete faith in Jesus. And you know, God asks us to follow Mary's example here. Like Mary, we need to trust that Jesus has the power to provide. Whatever it is that we're lacking, he can meet our need. And when we ask him for something, he might say yes, and he might say no. But either way, he's definitely the right one to ask. And in this case, for whatever reason, Jesus decides that it's time to take action. He looks over at six stone jars, and he gives the servants a few directions. And when you look at this from the servant's perspective, these instructions would have seemed a little strange. Okay, Jesus... First, you ask us to go find 150 gallons of water and fill up these jars. And now you want us to turn right around and take some of that water over to the master. We don't need water. We need wine. How does this help? But as far as we know, the servants do not question him. They just obey. They do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. And that's another good example for us. These servants show us that when Jesus tells you to do something, you better do it. Because think about it, if the servants ignored these instructions, they probably would have missed out on a miracle. But they do follow this command from Jesus, and they fill the jars right up to the brim. That way, nobody could say that Jesus added something later, like a packet of grape Kool-Aid. There wasn't any room And did you notice, Jesus doesn't act like some magician here. He he doesn't wave his hand over the jars or ask everyone to say a magic word. It was all very simple. The servants fill the jars, and they draw out some water, and then they take it to the master. And somewhere along the way, that water had turned into wine. As far as we can tell, the master of the banquet had no idea that a miracle had taken place. He turned to the groom and he said, wow. This wine is delicious. I would have expected the cheap stuff by this point, but you saved the best for last. What a guy. And my guess is that right about then, that groom breathed a sigh of relief. The feast went on like nothing had happened, and the family escaped that embarrassment and that shame. So this miracle of Jesus was not really a public event. It was more of a private display. And why would that be? We'll go back to verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And here we have another good example that we can follow in our lives. When you follow the example of the disciples, you will pay attention to the evidence and put your faith in Jesus. Now, these disciples, they got to see some powerful evidence that Jesus actually was the Messiah and the Son of God. But why did they get to see that evidence while most of the wedding guests were clueless? Well, the disciples were the ones who made the decision to follow Jesus and be close to him. And the same thing applies today. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will experience his power. You'll see plenty of evidence that Jesus is for real. So that's the story of the first miracle of Jesus. And even though it seems a little weird at first, it's actually a great story. We've already learned several lessons today, but we're not done yet. If we zoom out and get a bigger picture, this story can teach us several things about who God is. One thing I notice is that Jesus has the power to transform something, including us. Like I said earlier, he has God's power to create, to make something out of nothing. And he still has that power today. So let's make this personal. In your life, where are you lacking right now? Where are you empty? Are you short on confidence or courage? Or do you feel like joy has just drained out of your life? Are are you struggling with health or finances or relationships? Whatever it is that you're lacking... Jesus has the power to transform any and every situation, and like Mary, we can trust that he has the ability to provide whatever we need. Now, when you go to him with a request, will he say yes? I can't tell you that. I'm not Jesus, but however he responds to you, I can give you some very good news today. It's another thing we learn about God from this story. Jesus came so that God can invite us into great joy. What did Jesus do at that wedding? He performed a miracle that allowed the feast to continue. He gave these people the gift of joy. That's what God wants for all of us. He loves you, and he loves me, and he wants us to to experience pure and unending joy as we take our place in his kingdom. The trouble is, we have no right to enter his kingdom. But Jesus made a way. Jesus came into this world on a mission to prove God's love for us by laying down his life. Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and washed clean. And when someone is forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Jesus, you are given the right to enter God's presence To take your place in his kingdom. And you know, the kingdom of God will go on forever, but it's already begun. When Jesus turned water into wine, it was a sign of the beginning of God's kingdom. Do you know what the kingdom of God is like? It's kind of like a party, but it's better than that. It's more like a banquet. And really, it's like a feast, a wedding feast. It's the ultimate wedding feast. When Jesus, the groom, takes the church, as his bride. The prophet Isaiah wrote about this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Check this out. It's a beautiful picture. Isaiah 25, starting with verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Can you imagine what that banquet will be like? We can try but we can't really imagine it. We, we don't have any frame of reference to understand the experience of being in God's presence where death is gone and tears are gone and all of our regret and disgrace is gone. And then as a bonus, the food and the drinks will be better than anything we've had here. So no, I can't tell you exactly how that will feel, but I do know this. Everyone who is present at this feast will be completely filled with joy. It will be that deep and unending joy, which is what God has wanted for us all along. I ran across a quote this week from a preacher named Edmund Clowney. He was talking about this miracle in John chapter 2, and he made a profound statement. He said that at the wedding in Cana, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. After Jesus performed that miracle, he knew what had been set into motion. That sign was another milestone, another turning point in the journey toward the cross. He could see that cross on the horizon, and he knew the pain and the suffering that lay ahead. But for him, it was worth it. It was worth it because he wanted us to be present at that feast. And today, if you have given your life to Jesus and you've accepted the salvation that only comes from him, you can know that whatever happens in this life, however dark this world gets, you can handle it. You can sit amidst the sorrow of this world and sip the coming joy. So at the beginning of this sermon, I asked you a question. What is your impression of God? When you come to him with a request or a need, is he waiting to say yes or is he waiting to say no? As I thought about that this week, I was reminded of my relationship with my kids. We have three children, ages 10, 8, and 6. And you know, there are many situations when Hannah and I have to say no. For example, our kids don't always make good choices about what they eat. We have one child who likes to eat plain butter straight out of the package. So with each child, on a regular basis, we have to say, no, you don't get to eat that right now. But why do we tell them no? It's because we love them. It's because we want what is best for them. But then there are lots of other times when we say yes. For example, last weekend, we went down to the Woolfest. Fest. We went on Friday before it got super crowded. And we looked at all those food booths and we said, okay guys, take your pick, what do you want? And we all shared a plate of woolly woolly potatoes and then we got some hot dogs and tacos and blackberry cobbler and a big bag of kettle corn and it was great. And then later on, after it was dark, we went over to the pavilion where the bluegrass band was playing and our two girls, Kenna and Leah Claire, they ran up in front of the stage with a bunch of other kids And they just danced their little hearts out. And Hannah and I sat on the bleachers watching them twirl and spin and jump and laugh. And it made me so happy to see them happy. And you know, I think my role as a parent is similar to the way God sees us. Do I sometimes say no to my kids? Of course. And do I sometimes say yes? Absolutely. But what's the reason behind a yes or a no? In either case, the motivation is love. I love them like crazy, so much that I occasionally tell them no. But you know what? I don't get any joy out of telling them no. However, I get great joy when I can tell them yes. Their joy feeds my joy, and I am convinced that's how God relates to us. I believe that's one reason why the first miracle of Jesus took place at a wedding. That wedding was about to go bad, but Jesus went to work and he made it a great celebration. So that's one last thing I learn about God here. This miracle is evidence that in all the best ways, God wants to say yes to us. This wedding feast was not some trivial event. This this wasn't a waste of a good miracle. This shows us that God wants to say yes this this is the the best possible answer to our deepest questions because you can go to Jesus and say am I really invited to this feast in your kingdom after everything I've done and he'll say yes And, and will you take away my pain and my fear and my regret so that I can enjoy this celebration and he'll say yes And when I get there, will I finally be happy and satisfied and full of joy? And he'll say, yes, you'll have what you always wanted. You will be with me. Let's pray. Father, I know that many times our impression of you is inaccurate. And sometimes we can think of you looking down at us, with kind of an angry look on your face, just waiting to say no. But God, I thank you for your word, that even though you do tell us no, that is out of love. And then you also tell us yes. When it comes to our deepest needs, you want to say yes to us. You have invited us into your presence. And and there was a great cost to that. Jesus died to make that possible. And we thank you for the love that sacrifice represents. Lord, I pray that uh, we will accept the good things that you want to give us. That we'll hear you when you say no, but we'll also hear you when you say yes. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not yet begun that relationship and accepted all those good things that you want to give, I pray that they'll do that, even today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.